Hello and welcome back to Pan Am. It's Amber. And if this is your first time listening, then welcome to the show. But stop right here and go back because this is part two of a two-part series. So you're not going to understand anything. Um, So let's just recap where we were, shall we? We left off learning about the Statue of Liberty, that she was made well, conceived in France by La Boulet and the sculptor Bartholdi. And they wanted to get this project off the ground, the Prussian War intervenes, and finally Bartholdi is sent over to America to try and drum up support. But did he? And what happened next? Let's find out. So Bartholdi came back from America with mixed results. Despite his winning personality and enthusiasm for this project, it was not an easy sell. I wonder why. Well, American reticence is understandable. France did indeed send help during the American War of Independence, although that was largely because they did not like the English, wonder why, rather than perhaps they loved the idea of American freedom. But more troublingly, during the recent civil war, not only had France officially supported the Confederates, but they had tried to sneakily annex Mexico during all the confusion. America was understandably perhaps feeling a bit sort of meh towards France. And more importantly, this grand, and by grand I mean huge and hugely expensive gift, came with strings. After much discussion, it was decided that the French would build and pay for the statue, but the Americans were expected to build and pay for the pedestal, leaving Americans feeling a bit like, thanks to this gift that we didn't ask for, not sure we want and don't know where to put, oh, and we have to pay for it. Meanwhile, feeling in France was, why are we paying for this massive statue that we're not even going to be able to keep? Undeterred, however, Bartholdi returned to France and began to work. He engaged the help of none other than Notre Dame renovator Violet Le Duc to help him with his project. His main concern was how would such a huge structure stay up. Le Duc got busy working on this and Bartholdi got to sculpting. Now, building a colossal statue is not just starting at the feet and working up. So the first thing Bartholdi did was to make a small model of the finished statue, about 1 metre 20, which is 4 foot. He already actually had this handy as he'd used it to show the Americans a mock-up of the real deal. But from 1 metre to 46 metres, the actual height of the Statue of Liberty, there is a huge difference. So he made two more intermediate models, one of 2 metres and another of 8 metres which made it a quarter scale. Both were made of plaster, and it was the latter model that was used for the final enlargements. He then divided it into 12 pieces, reconstructed them in copper, and got measuring. To be sure of his proportions, Bartholdi took numerous measurements. In total, he identified 9,000 points of agreement between his model and the real statue, points that he regularly adjusted because once enlarged, the model could differ from the expected result. Here is a quote to give you an idea of just what an epic undertaking this was, at a time, remember, before computers. 
quote, This method was very simple in theory, but required a certain amount of skill on the part of the workers. Each nail or marked point required six measurements, one per dimension for the model, another per dimension for the enlarged replica, not counting the verification measurements, and in each part there were 300 main points and more than 1,200 secondary points. So each part required more than 9,000 measurements. I'm not sure I really even understand the explanation of what they're doing, let alone what they were actually doing. I mean, just to give you an idea, I used to work in a restaurant organising events and I wasn't that great at it. I will let you work out what happened if we had 12 guests on the 21st. It would often get mixed up. So if I was in charge of making the Statue of Liberty, she would never have been made. But thankfully, I was not. Once he'd made all his measurements, he got to making his mould. So first he made a wooden mould, then he filled it with plaster and made a plaster mould, and then made the reverse again in wood, and then the copper was hammered into those wooden moulds. Now, if this seems like an incredibly daunting project, especially when you're receiving pushback from the people funding you, then you would be right. Was Bartholdi ever put off? Well, yes, he was. Now, we all know that he ended up finishing the statue, of course we do, but there were moments when he was close to throwing it all in, especially when problems occurred. He started off by building her right arm, which holds the ever-lit torch. On its own, it measures 42 feet, which is about 12 metres. By itself, it's already pretty incredible, and he was hoping to get it ready for the 1876 Philadelphia exhibition in time for the centenary. If he could not send the whole statue, then at least part of her could be there. When disaster struck, the plaster mould for the arm was dropped and smashed. It had already taken so much time and money by this point, and it was far, far, far from being finished. And this was a huge setback. I don't know how he didn't just throw up his hand and say, that's enough, I'm not doing it anymore. And he nearly did. But no, he got back to work and rebuilt the arm and actually made it in time to get shipped and get to the Philadelphia exhibition just in time. And it was a sensation. You could pay 15 cents, which is about $15 in today's money, to go up the arm, which is pretty pricey, but still cheaper than going up the Eiffel Tower. And there was a gift shop at the bottom selling souvenirs. Now, I have read, but Is it true, I don't know, that the word gadget comes from the engineer working on Liberty who made the souvenirs of the statues to be sold at the gift shop? And he had stamped them with his name, Gadget, which is, when said with an American accent, becomes gadget. Regardless, it will help fund the project and raise interest. It was a great idea to send the arm and it really boosted Bartholdi and gave him the courage to continue. He had actually been wondering if he should stop at just the arm, but encouraged, he went on. And more good news came. Congress agreed to give Bedloe Island to the statue. The arm was shipped back to Paris and fundraising moved on apace. Bartholdi hosted private events in the arm, sold souvenirs and did his best to raise funds. But then a lottery and some clever marketing sealed the deal. They had the money. As the statue grew, so did their need for space. And this is my absolute favourite part of the story. The atelier Bartholdi was using was at 25 Rue de Chazelle in today's 17th arrondissement, which is now a pretty posh neighbourhood and just next to the Parc Monceau, but then lay just outside of the city proper. 
Today, if you go to that address, there's really nothing special. But in the 1880s, the site was in the hands of the architect Gaget, who we've already mentioned, and engineer Gautier. They specialised in roofing, plumbing, water distribution, but also artistic works in lead and copper. They had already made a name for themselves by restoring the Vendome Column in 1873, which had been knocked down and broken by the communards, as well as the Dome of the Opera and the Archangel St. Michel in the Fountain. But Liberty, the most colossal statue ever conceived at the time, represented a much more spectacular undertaking. So they rented a 3,000 square metre plot of land on the Rue de Chazelle right next to their workshops. After the arm was completed, the head came next. Bartholdi, as part of his campaign to whip up interest, took photos in the workshop that he released to the press and allowed people to visit the atelier. As a result, we have some incredible pictures and I urge you to have a look. I'll put them on Instagram and my site or just Google them if you like. It's like you're entering a world of Gulliver, the workers transformed into Lilliputians. The head went on display at the Universal Exhibition in Paris in the gardens of the Champ de Mars in 1878. You could visit it for five cents. Another brainwave was to host events inside Liberty's head. Columnist Jules Clerté writes enthusiastically in an article from Le Journal Illustré on May 13, 1883, about the astonishment of Parisians catching sight of the colossal figure rising out of the roof. Quote, the head is complete, the right arm finished, liberty has emerged up to the waist. Gigantic fingers, including indexes measuring over nine feet long, are piled up against the walls. Anyone would think they were in some magical land, at a factory where dwarves are manufacturing a metal giant. Even the illustrious Victor Hugo visited the statue. The now aged author climbed the two inner floors of the statue before making a pithy comment about peace, quote, this beautiful work strives for what I have always loved, peace between America and France. Bartholdi gave him a fragment of the monument, which he inscribed for him in return. Now, speaking of Victor Hugo, Violet Le Duc, the engineer in charge of working on the crucial question of how to hold up the statue, had died. Bartholdi employed a new young engineer, Gustav Eiffel, to find a solution to the pressing problem of keeping the giant statue upright. Eiffel moved away from Leduc's original ideas, which had included such things as filling the statue with sand, and came up with a novel design, a lightweight, freestanding metal structure. There was a lot to be taken into consideration. The weight of the statue, the height, the weather that can cause metal to expand and contract in different temperatures, and of course the wind. And, as it turns out, a terrifying extra concern. Eiffel's internal structure was made of iron. Bartholdi's statue is copper. If the two were to touch, they would create electricity, making a sort of colossal battery. So there had to be a barrier between them so that they didn't touch. The solution Eiffel found was to loosely rivet the copper statue to the frame, and this would give the structure some movement, which is important, and space between the exterior and interior, so they would not touch. It was light, flexible and solid. Outside, Liberty is classical, a look back to Roman mythology, but inside, she was cutting edge and modern. 
By 1883, the statue was completed, but still had to get to the US, which was not an easy undertaking given its dimensions, 46 metres or 151 feet high and weighing 225 tonnes. The statue was dismantled into 350 parts, divided into 210 boxes, including 36 for rivets and bolts, and then transported by train from Saint-Lazare to Rouen, and the whole thing was loaded onto the Isère, a French frigate. The French government having covered the cost of the Atlantic crossing. This was the only financial contribution that the government made to this Franco-American cooperation. She arrived in New York on the 17th of June, 1885. But lo, where to go? The pedestal was not ready. You might think that it is just a pedestal, but it is massive. There is a 65-foot-tall foundation fashioned in the shape of an 11-point star and then an 89-foot stone pedestal. But America is still like, why are we having to pay for this? And if it's going to be in New York, shouldn't New York pay for it? Other places were not keen on spending their money on a statue they might never see. But all of this was turned around by a certain newspaper magnate, Joseph Pulitzer. He was the publisher of the New York World, and he started a fantastically successful campaign. He wrote in his paper, quote, The $250,000 that the making of the statue cost was paid in by the masses of the French people, by the working men, the tradesmen, the shop girls, the artisans, by all, irrespective of class or condition. Let us respond in like manner. Let us not wait for the millionaires to give us this money. It is not a gift from the millionaires of France to the millionaires of America, but a gift of the whole people of France to the whole people of America. And then he promised he would publish the names of anyone who donates, no matter how small an amount, in his newspaper. And that really sealed the deal for them, because everyone likes to see their name in print. The money started coming in, and Pulitzer would also often occasionally publish sweet little letters from children saying how they'd given all their pocket money and, you know, very sort of beguiling. It really, really worked. 80% of the money raised was in sums of less than $1. And six months in, he had already reached the goal. But more than that, it had helped bring this project of the Statue of Liberty from a New York project to an American project So finally, Liberty, after a year left in her crate, was ready to be put together and the world's most complex IKEA assembly began. And apparently some mistakes were made, but overall she went up without too much of a hitch. On October 29th, 1886, a grey, rainy and cold day, hundreds gathered for her inauguration and there was much celebrating and waving of French and American flags. The bay was full of boats. Sadly, they probably couldn't see much because of all the fog. That said, there were some who rightly did not feel that liberty was such a great symbol for America. Liberty may well have been a woman, but women in the US were far from free and equal. A small group of suffragettes hired a boat and made a stand. I'm sure Marguerite Durand would have approved. Likewise, black people, despite the very, very recent abolition of slavery, could hardly call themselves free and equal with their rights and liberties curtailed in every possible way. 
but the inauguration went by with only minimal problems, notably when Bartholdi accidentally let down the flag to reveal Liberty's face in the middle of the president's speech and everyone started clapping and there was a gun salute and it took about 15 minutes before it quietened down and he could finish his speech. But the story is not quite over. Liberty started out very much French, but she has become very much American. How did this happen? Well, in part, it was the placement of Liberty on the small island facing out into the bay. Her exact positioning was chosen by Bartholdi himself. Although she's looking towards France, sort of, he placed her a little bit more south so that boats coming in would get the best view of her. And they do. And who came into America by boat at the turn of the last century? Literally in their millions? Immigrants starting a new life in this promised land. And the first thing they see is this glorious, colossal statue. The adding of Emma Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus, which she had originally written to help raise money for the pedestal and which was somehow forgotten and only added years later, also helped to give meaning to the statue. I'm sure most of you know at least the most famous part of her poem, but just to refresh you. Quote, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Pulitzer, an immigrant who had come to America barely speaking English, the embodiment of the American dream. Lazarus, a Jewish poet who worked with immigrants. These were not the people Bartholdi set out to glorify, not the original idea of La Boulet to celebrate French and American democracy, but these are the people that gave meaning to the statue, gave her a voice and a purpose, and in doing so, changed her identity from French to American. She is undoubtedly one of the most recognisable figures in the world. She represents liberty and not liberté. But let us head back to France, because although her little sister will have passed by to say hello by the time you hear this, and should be over in Washington by now, that is not the end of the story of liberty in Paris. You see, the French, particularly the Parisians, had very much got used to this gorgeous statue, who for some time had been on display on the Champ de Mars, and hearing that the Americans seemed lukewarm about her, were keen for her to stay in Paris. Don't worry, a new tower will take her place soon. Admittedly, many of the Parisians did not like it at first, but they get used to it. So to help appease them and say thank you, the American Committee of Paris offered the town a bronze model of the original, much smaller. It was based on the first model that Bartholdi made. It was first placed in the Place des États-Unis and later moved to the Ile de Cine, where she originally looked over towards Paris and the Champ de Mars, where the Universal Exhibition was taking place and her replacement, the Eiffel Tower, stood. Later, she was turned around to look towards her big sister. But that is not all the Statues of Liberty we have in Paris. In the beginning, I told you there used to be seven. Now there are six. And I'll put a list or a map on my website so you can find them. But let's have a look at some of the examples. As well as being on the Ile du Cygne, you can also find one at the Orsay Museum, by the Novotel, on a boat, and of course in the Luxembourg Gardens. There's also a copy of Liberty's Flame above the Alma Bridge in central Paris, not far from the Eiffel Tower. 
It's a full-sized gold-leaf cover replica and it was offered to Paris in 1989 by the International Herald Tribune to celebrate its 100th anniversary of publishing an English-language daily newspaper in Paris. The flame, however, has come to represent Lady Diana, who sadly perished under that very bridge, and tributes can still be found to her. The most surprising Statue of Liberty, however, is over in the 6th arrondissement. So let's go over to Place Michel Debray, where we will find Caesar's ceinture. This modern sculpture by Caesar dates back to 1985 and is, as you would expect, a half-man, half-horse creature. This hybrid being expresses the artist's two passions, one for horses and the other for Picasso. The face of the centaur is Caesar's, but a mask, which is designed so that it could be brought down to cover his face, is of Picasso. The body is made of various everyday objects, like brooms, bolts, spades, and just popping her head out from his chest, which is quite hard to see as the statue is pretty big, is a tiny statue of liberty. I don't really know why she's there. I couldn't find a reason, just for fun, I suppose. Now, the Santor was originally intended to be put just by the Tour Montparnasse, but Caesar felt that his majestic creature would, quote, look like a little dog. So after two years of negotiation, they settled on his current spot, despite protests from the more prudish locals who found the statue somewhat exaggerated attributes upsetting. So I think that's about it for the Statue of Liberty. Next time you're in Paris, do go along, find one of them, to say hi, whether you want to leave a tribute for Diana or take a quiet moment in the gardens of Luxembourg or try and spot the tiny little hidden statue on the Sancture. It's up to you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Let me know. You can always leave a comment or contact me on Instagram. I'll put up some pictures as ever on my website and Instagram, maybe a map so you can find out where all the Statues of Liberty are. As ever, if you want to support the show, then you can join by Patreon and you get extra bonus content or you can make a one-off donation on PayPal. And if that's not for you, then tell a friend or leave a review. I really appreciate them. And I'd like to say thank you to Julia for doing just that with her alliterative review, Purely Perfectly Paris. Thank you so much. And Zitty for her review, Visiting Paris with Greater Depth. I really appreciate it and it makes my day. And of course, as ever, thank you to Christopher. I appreciate all your support and your help with the music, editing, mixing, all that kind of stuff. And I'll link to his fantastic work in the show notes. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. <laughs>